Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask people to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They choose four things that they cherish, but they also choose one thing they'd like to get rid of from their life, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the Welsh stand-up comedian, broadcaster and actor, Ellis James, who is highly sought after throughout the comedy circuit and at the Edinburgh Festival, and makes the Ellis James and John Robbins show with comedian John Robbins, originally on XFM and then on Radio X. In 2019, they hosted a new show on BBC Radio 5. The show continues to be a very popular podcast. He also hosts the Ellis James Feast of Football podcast, discussing the new fortunes of the Welsh national team and Welsh clubs Cardiff, Swansea, Newport and Wrexham. Since 2014, he's co-written and co-starred in the BBC Radio Wales sketch show Here Be Dragons, which won the Sony Award in 2014. The radio show Ankle Tag, which he performs with Katie Wicks and Steve Spears, has run for three series on BBC Radio 4 since 2017. And on television, he's well known for his role as Josh Widdicombe's mate in the comedy series Josh, and for his performances in the Welsh mockumentary Tourist Trap with Sally Phillips. He lives in Crystal Palace with the comedian Izzy Sutty and their two children. So... Sit back and enjoy the delightful Ellis James. And if you don't come out of the end of this happier and more relaxed than you are right now, you can have your money back. Yeah, I know this podcast is free. Anyway, have fun. Do you know Mark Thomas? Yes. Yeah. An absolutely lovely bloke who's mm. got time for everyone. The reason I know him is because I did a show at the Battersea Arts Theatre and we were walking out afterwards. And he came towards us, and I thought, oh, God, it's Mark Thomas. God, I love Mark Thomas. And he stopped, he went, oh, mate, mate, saw the show, absolutely. And he just did one of those sort of, you know, almost like, I'm just a bloke in the street, I've seen your show, I just had to tell yeah. you how much I enjoyed it. I went, thanks, thanks very much. And I was like a little boy, you know. Oh, yeah. Now, with Mark, he did a show called, 
it was something like a hundred acts of rebellion, but he would need volunteers. And I was on his little text group list. Oh, right. So um, they were going to charge to play sport in some park in London where it's been free for 200 years. And he was very against this. So he just texted me at about four o'clock and said, you know, could you get to Regent's Park or whatever it is? By 6pm, we're going to play rounders. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we turned up. There were about 200 people all playing this mass game of rounders and he filmed it. <laughs> and there was the other one, uh, Apple. Their office was in Ireland because they could pay less tax, even though all of their operations yeah. were in the UK. And he, we turned up at the Apple store on Regent Street and he had like an Irish band. You got a Kaylee going <laughs> next, to all these, next to all these iPhones and iPads for about a quarter of an hour until we were moved on by security. But yeah, really made me laugh. When it's done with such humour, they would look like real arses yeah. if they got shirty about well, it. Well, his programme, the comedy product, Mark Thomas's comedy product on Channel 4 in the 90s yeah. was great at that. Yeah. I do remember one where he challenged the idea that people were living in huge houses and then claiming them as charitable places because they opened them to the public for one day a year. Yeah. And he started visiting these beautiful great big country houses just with a bunch of people saying, hello, we've come for the open day. <laughs> <laughs> Is genius. Yeah. You've got a community of stand-ups. You're in Crystal Palace. Yeah, aren't you? yeah. There's lords here. Yeah, Kevin Day. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Andy Saltzman's not far from here. Oh, Jeremy right, Hardy yeah. lived in Streatham. He lived. He lived not yeah. too far. He was a lovely man, Jeremy. Mm. He was a lovely, lovely man. Yes. From what I understand, in the nineties, a lot of the stand-ups all lived in Crouch End. But sort of my generation, we've we've all oddly settled in this bit of South London. I don't know why that is, but yeah, it's great. Affordable when you went. Well, there. Yeah, probably was. Yeah. yeah. Where do you live, Mike? I live in Tunbridge Wells. Oh, do you? In the early 80s when I first had children, we looked around all over London and we looked at Clapham. I remember yeah. finding a, um, a one-and-a-half-bedroom flat in Clapham, quite near the common, so you know, reasonably well-placed. But that was uh, £31,000. Yeah. Can you imagine, Ellis? Yeah, Can yeah. you imagine? And then we went to visit a friend in Kent and he brought us to a friend of his who was having a dinner party in Tunbridge Wells. And we were talking about this, this, you know, we need to find somewhere, you know, we're going to have a baby, we want to get our own place. And they said, well, this place is on the market for 27000 And my wife said, we'll take it. <laughs> and I said, uh, uh. <laughs> but that's why I live in Tunbridge Wells, because my wife is decisive. My mum bought a car over the phone once. <laughs> yeah, the man who ran the dealership, his daughter was my sister's best friend at school, so she trusted him. Yeah. And she called him up and she said, we need a car. He said, I can see a, a Toyota Corolla on the uh, on the forecourt. That looks, I think that would suit you as a family. She said, all right. Um, what colour is it? He said, it's grey. She said, is it a good car? He said, yes. And she said, I'll take it. <laughs> and he said, I've never in my life sold a car over the phone, Mrs James, but thank you. <laughs> well, absolutely, thank you. But isn't that the way the world should be? Yeah. Anyway, I'm rabbiting on. Let's see what you've got to put into the time capsule. What's your first item? My first item is my first stand-up notebook, which was my diary as well. So I did stand-up for the first time, I think, in January 2005. And that means I was 24 years of age. Yeah. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have met Izzy. I wouldn't have the children. I almost certainly wouldn't live in London. 
I probably wouldn't be a homeowner. I wouldn't be on the radio. I wouldn't have done any acting on telly. I would <laughs> never have done a podcast. I would never have done a football podcast and got to meet some footballers who are heroes of mine. Mm. All of that came from that very first gig, which was at a pub called the Mochindi in Cardiff, which was where I lived at the time. It was not far from where I lived, actually. And before you think that this is this very triumphant, vainglorious inclusion to the time capsule, the thing I find (laughs) fascinated about it is when I look at this notebook, I recognise the handwriting because my handwriting hasn't changed, although it actually has has probably deteriorated a little bit. Yeah. But um, the ideas are so bad. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) rubbish. And I I cannot believe I was saying that stuff out loud in front of real people. (laughs) And the thing I'll, I'll never stop being fascinated by is that in January 2005, I was 24 years of age. I'm now 40. So I'd... I'd graduated, I was working at a real job, I'd left home. I was an adult to all intents and purposes. And in many ways, I'm the same person. But the thing I find absolutely extraordinary at just how bad the ideas are, and they were for ages as well. I mean, they were bad ideas for a long time. Mm. I don't think I'm any funnier now than I was then in person. I'm no cleverer, I'm no more intelligent but stand-up is a craft and you learn to do it on stage mm. and you learn to do it in front of people and you learn to do it by doing it lots of times, which is why, not that I'm in any position to give advice to people, but it, the one bit of advice I am confident in giving to an aspiring stand-up is just do it as much as you can. Mm. Because if you do stand-up, say, once a month, that's 12 gigs in a year and it's just not enough. But if you do gigs, five gigs a week for a year, you will be a very, very different comic at the end of it. And, you know, it's a craft. And I'm sure that you could take any of the best actors on the planet and if you looked at their early forays into youth theatre, they'd be making some bad choices. <laughs> and I'm sure that some of the best bands on earth are embarrassed by their demo tapes, their early demo tapes. And there might be a kernel of something that they like and there might be something, all, oh, yeah, we were always going to go in that direction. But stand-up in particular, no stand-up is fully formed when mm. they start. I think some get there much more quickly than others, and some have a natural talent. So I, I, I never saw him, but people tell me that Peter Kay burst onto the scene and was just incredible from the start. Apparently so in the sort of moment that I've been the mid to late 90s in Manchester, which is where he started. So I know a couple of promoters who are based up there, and they will say, oh, yeah, I mean, from the off... It was clear he's going to be an absolute superstar. Mm. I did a radio pilot with Peter Kay before he was famous, when he was being hired as an actor. And we did the rehearsals of it. The script was quite funny. The person who'd written it said to him, you know, if at any point you fancy just going off script, that's fine. And we all just stood there sort of open-mouthed as he just riffed. And it yeah. was brilliant. It was brilliant. That pilot was never made. Do you know who else was in that pilot? Who? Johnny Vegas. Oh, my God! Johnny Vegas and Peter Kay on the same... Together. I mean... I know. <laughs> some exec would have thought, no. Bit northern, actually, for Radio 4. <laughs> That's amazing. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the idea that if you just plug away something and keep at it, you improve. And obviously that's not true of everyone because, you know, when I was in open spot, 
It took me three and a half years to go full-time as a stand-up. So my first gig was in January 2005, and my the first month right enough to not have to work in a cafe was September 2008. So just over three and a half years. And there were comics, open-spot comedians I knew who'd been going for 10 years. Mm. And, you know, they weren't good enough. They didn't have it in them. And some of them maybe didn't want it, but I think that there were some that just weren't very funny, and that, that's going to happen. They were mm-hmm. almost always funnier than they were when they'd started. You do improve if you keep doing something. <laughs> Unless you completely ignore the audience. Yeah. <laughs> they're wrong, they're wrong, I'm very funny. Well, there are plenty of, There are plenty who think that. But mm. it's also, it's a, it's a lesson I'm trying to teach my kids is that, you know, if you if you practice at something, there will be some improvement. And obviously if you're Mozart, that improvement will lead you to writing symphonies if you're if you have more normal abilities, then it will just mean that you pass your grade five piano or whatever. I wrote a book a couple of years ago with John, who I do the radio show with on Five Live, mm. because John loved these diary entries, because I used to write these self-flagellating <laughs> diary entries. <laughs> and he found it so funny, because also I, I'd realised by the age of 25 that um, I wasn't suited really to doing anything else. So it was a slight last chance saloon. Mm. And I thought, God, if I don't make this work, then I don't know what I'm going to do. And suddenly then I remember adulthood stretched out before me and it it felt quite intimidating because I'd enjoyed school and I'd enjoyed university and I'd stayed on at uni. I'd done an MA, but I wasn't clever enough or disciplined enough to take that any further. So I thought, right, well, I need to do something. And I remember... um, I don't know if you get this. I used to get real adult imposter syndrome. (laughs) Still do. I remember remember queuing during my lunch break in the post office in Cardiff to buy some road tax or something. (laughs) I remember thinking, this can't be They're not going to sell it to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm 11. What's I 11? They're not going to sell me road tax. (laughs) I'm, I'm a child. And then thinking, no, you're not a child, you're 25. Yes. If only I had a stick on moustache, I... I'm going to practice my deep voice. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, I'm two kids under an overcoat, aren't I? <laughs> Pretending to be an adult to buy some road tax. So I remember thinking then, I remember thinking in the queue, God, if I'm 25, if I'm going to retire at 65, that's 40 years. I need to find something to do for 40 mm-hmm. years. And I'd done, you know, four or five gigs or something by that point. I remember thinking... This has to, this has to work because <laughs> I'm running out of yeah. options. Well, I've been in post offices where that would have taken up much of that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, did you write down your material, but also a critique of it? I used to write down my material, and I used to write down critiques mm. of it. What, how it had gone, or, or what you thought of it? How it had gone. I used to, I used to award myself marks out of ten. So, for instance, this is from the twenty sixth of the first. 2006, Jester's in Bristol. So I awarded myself six and a half out of ten. This is written in capitals because I'm angry. You're better than doing jokes about alloy wheels. I don't know why I was so angry at myself for doing a joke about an alloy wheel. I'm ashamed of you. Yeah. Also, the Cockney impression didn't get a laugh because I opened with it and at that stage the audience didn't know I wasn't actually a Cockney. Bracket, rejig this for gigging Stroud. So, and there's... Good notes. They're good notes. Yeah. And these these strange notes for myself where I would write things like, maybe try writing a joke about radiation because most people have heard of radiation. And I was clearly (laughs) just flouncing around looking for something. Mm. And what I seem to remember is for the first couple of years, 
I would try and imagine the audience and make jokes that I thought this imaginary audience in my head would like. Whereas after a couple of years when I was a bit more comfortable on stage, I started going on stage and telling jokes that I found funny, Mm. which was a really big difference because your comedic voice is quite a hard thing to explain to someone who hasn't done comedy before. But if you're not authentic, and that authenticity doesn't have to be that you're wearing the clothes that you would wear to go to the shops or on a night out, you know, like Milton Jones's sticky up hair and the Hawaiian shirts. Mm. That is authentic because you believe that he would inhabit that character. Yeah. Whereas if I went on stage with hair like that and wearing one of those shirts, people would think, he's a bit uncomfortable. He's, he's <laughs> this isn't him. Yes, it doesn't have to be small, does it? I mean, if you think of Lee yeah. Evans, Lee Evans is, is a very extreme character on stage. And yet you absolutely you believe, believe it. You completely believe him, yeah. And I think that the strange thing with your comedic voice is that you can have a really great joke, but if it doesn't suit your comedic voice, the audience won't buy it, which is Mm. why often maybe toppers that are given to you from another comedian, if it doesn't suit your sort of comedy, the joke itself can be perfectly constructed and work, but it won't, the audience won't buy it. And I think you don't discover your comedic voice until you've done loads and loads of gigs because it's based on expectation, what the audience expect from you, what you almost where you are in your life at that time as well yeah. and how far you can push it. So, I mean, um, like I, I could never deliver some of the jokes that Frankie Boyle used to make years ago because people would be like, oh my, oh my God, why, why, why is the nice Welsh man saying those things? <laughs> but it's completely acceptable from Frankie. And I think that after a couple of years or so, um, I realised that by trying to make people laugh by saying the things that made me laugh anyway and clearly invigorated me as a person, they were more likely to go with me. And then also by that stage, it kind of dovetailed with the fact that I'd done lots of gigs by that point and I was a bit better and a better writer. So it's a long, drawn-out process. Yeah, so a lot of people, when they first start, they do impose something on themselves and they sort of think, well, I can't just go out and be me. I have to go out and have some. Yeah. So they'll be, I'm, I'm the aggressive person or I'm the angry person or I'm the stupid yes. person. You know, I'll be something like that. They'll impose it on themselves and quite often they'll, in a way, put a costume on. I like it when that fades with a comic, when they go, you know, I don't need those props anymore. It's a bit like with the radio show I do with John. When we did our first pilot, I took all the links and I I led the show because I'd done more radio than John had. Mm. So I'd done a lot of radio with Rod Gilbert on Radio With. So I was was more used to a radio studio scenario. But what Mm. that didn't reflect was our actual relationship and our dynamic. And then we realised this and then John started bleeding a lot more. And it just, it suddenly clicked into place and it was more like the kind of phone conversations we used to have then. And in terms of comedic voice, I think the reason that pod, well, not not just our podcast, but podcasts in general resonate with people is that, you know, John's my best mate. I talk to him on air for mm. an hour and a half every Friday. Before that, it was for three hours on Radio X and XFM. And because he knows me so well, you can't pretend <laughs> you can pretend for five minutes when you're on a local radio station trying to plug your tour show. You can mm. be anyone you like for five minutes. But you can't be anyone you like for three hours every Saturday afternoon because no. it would be too, ty- be too tiring. It would be impossible to sustain. <laughs> to remember all the lies you've told. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like when I used to have 
office jobs and I would lie about if I'd done the work or not. And then the next day I would forget what lie I'd told and I'd get found out and it was, and then I'd get sacked. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was excruciating. Oh God. Yeah. So I did a lot of temping and then I would get, I would lie and then I would get found out and I would get sacked <laughs> and then I'd have to move to a different temping agency. <laughs> Oh, yes. So how many books are there in total that we're going to put into the time capsule? I think I'll just put the first one in. Right. Because it's quite sweet, because I write these long critiques of every gig. In those early years, every gig is a cup final. So the adrenaline would be astonishing. You know, absolutely extraordinary. I wouldn't be able to sleep. And then I would write these long essays about my performance, whereas in reality I probably should have spent more time working on the jokes as opposed to <laughs> these strange critiques. But I, I like looking back at them because they're very sweet because I'm so desperate to succeed and more often than not I'm doing quite badly. But I never I never obviously I didn't give up, which I'm quite surprised at <laughs> when I look back at some of the marks I'm awarding myself. So um yeah, just that first one from two thousand and five. Fantastic. I can imagine the entry. Show went well. One bloke really loved me. The other bloke didn't think much of me. (laughs) Imagine 150 of those. Yeah. There's an Australian high jumper who writes a critique of every jump she makes. Have you seen her? Oh, no. It reminds me of that. She's amazing. But every time she finishes, she immediately goes back, sits down, picks up her notebook and and gives herself a mark out of ten. Wow. Mm. Surely it should be, if you made it, 10 out of 10. And if you fail and knock the bar off, it's 0 <laughs> out of 10. There can't be much can't be much in the middle, can there? It is a bit black and white, isn't it? I, I think. suppose if you but, graze the bar but it stays on, that would be a 5 out of 10. I don't know. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, she knows more about high jumping than we do. So, yes, uh, yes, yeah. that's, that's fair. But um, I will take that very first book of yours and put it into the time capsule and keep it there safely for you. Thank you. There we are. That's item number one. So what's, what's your second item? Item number two is one of my... I've got it here, actually. It's one of my favourite records. It's from 1995 by a Welsh psychedelic folk band called Gorky Zygotic Monkey, who were my favourite group when I was growing up. They're still my favourite band, in fact, 25 <laughs> years on. And I love this album because I think this is the best album they made from their most fruitful, successful period creatively. Although I love, I love it all, but I think this around sort of 94 to 96, I, just thought, I think they were the best band in Britain. Best band in the world, actually. And then, and also what I loved about it is that they, they used to have their designs made, uh, their cover art made by a man called um, Alan Holmes. And it was this great synergy of the cover art perfectly representing the music. But the reason this record, and probably the band means so much to me, is that they, they went to my school. So they were in sixth form when I was in uh, form one. So you sort of were their first fan? Not quite their first fan, but I was aware of them before most people were. Mm. certainly because they had a record deal when they were still in school. Right. And they started off singing exclusively in, in Welsh, in the Welsh language. So their early singles would would get into the Welsh charts. So that's where I became aware of them, because obviously they were just the cool kids in the sixth form. Mm. But the lead singer's mother worked with my mum, so I would get, you know, titbits about how their tour was going from my mum, who would see the lead singer's mum you know, <laughs> in the kitchen when she was making a cup of tea at 11 o'clock in the morning you know, before going into a meeting. <laughs> and the reason that 
meant so much to me, or the reason this record means so much to me, is that I didn't know anyone who had a career in performing. None of my friends' parents or my parents were performers or, you know, were in bands or actors or stand-ups. And even though I loved comedy, it's difficult to imagine, really, stand-up played a very, very minor role in British culture in the mid-90s. There was very little of it on telly. The stand-up that was on telly in the mid-90s, the consensus was that it didn't really work and that it didn't reflect the buzz of a live gig on TV, that that couldn't be transplanted onto our TV screens. No. So it was it was it was live with the Apollo really was the first one, but that was, you know, that was years later. It was two thousand five, mm. I think. I worked on a stand up show which had brilliant acts on it for Granada Television in the early nineties. Oh, what was that called? I think it was called Stand Up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's how inventive it was. And it just <laughs> they basically had all these brilliant acts come on and and really throw their great acts away by doing them on television. And then they yeah. would edit them down and try and cut between acts. That's a really weird thing to do. It wasn't yes. it wasn't a good thing. So there were there were a few stand ups who had videos out, Eddie Izzard, Anna mm-hmm. Davis, Lee Evans, Mark Lamar. But in the main it was a real minority pursuit and When I did Edinburgh, the first Edinburgh I did was in 2008, the first full run. And I was at a venue called the Cabaret Bar in the Pleasance. And it had flyers and brochures from Edinburgh festivals in the 80s and 90s sort Mm. of glued to the wall. And, you know, like nowadays, comedies, I mean, I'll say nowadays, I mean, sort of pre-pandemic 2019, (laughs) um, the last sort of normal Edinburgh, if you like, comedy was the biggest thing at the festival. And it, it wasn't the biggest thing at the festival, I don't think, until 2008. I think it was always, I think that was the first year where it overtook theatre. Mm. But you look at those brochures from the mid-90s, it's like 30 shows. Yeah. Pretty much all at the same venue. And this is <laughs> before the Free Fringe. Sort of amazing, really, where it's grown, because now it's hundreds and hundreds of shows. Mm. And so stand-up really wasn't something that I was... Um, energised by or invigorated or inspired by. It was just comedy more generally, specifically TV comedy on Mm. on BBC Two and on Channel Four. But I didn't know anyone who was involved in it. They just seemed to have arrived fully formed on TV. I thought, where where did you come from? (laughs) And and you'd read about it, and a lot of them obviously had done the footlights in Cambridge, and I think, right, Mm. so if I want to be a comedian, I've got to get really good (laughs) A-levels. Oh, God. (laughs) Right, okay, good A-levels. And, you know, my school, it was a state school, it was a good state school, but, you know, we'd send maybe one kid to Oxford or Cambridge a year, so you're like, okay, well, so if I want to be a comedian, I need to do, I need to get three A's at A-level and uh, really, really ace that interview <laughs> and then join the footlights and then I'll have a career. And the thing with the Gorkies, because obviously they were, I mean, I doubt they would class themselves as such, but they were effectively an indie band, they were on an indie label and they'd started off doing small gigs and releasing self-made cassettes and mm. then were discovered by a record label who put them out and then they moved to a major record label. What I found so inspiring was obviously because I knew them and they had the same background as me and they'd gone to the same school as me and my mum knew the singer's mum. And they, I remember they were on the front of the Melody Maker and they were in the NME and I remember thinking, getting single of the week in the NME and I remember thinking, wow, you actually can do that. You can... You don't have to go to Cambridge and get really good A-levels to be in a band. (laughs) 
And so suddenly then, because up to that point, my ambitions really had been work in my dad's office because that was all I sort of knew. Mm-hmm. You know, I understood probably by the age of 10 that I wasn't going to be a footballer. So you're like, okay, well, what can I do? And it was very, very, very inspiring seeing someone from my town, from my school, succeed in an area or in a field that I wanted to succeed in. And I, I just, I really, really wish I could bottle that feeling mm. and hand it to every teenager who's slightly uncertain on the planet. Because it's, it, you think, okay, well, if they've done it, even if I'm not good enough, where I'm from isn't the thing that's going to stop me from doing it. Yeah. Because, you know, I love my hometown, but it was, you know, culture at the time, sort of TV was all very London-centric and Carmarthen, where I grew up, was... It's five hours from London. So if suddenly, and London, especially when you've grown up in a small town, is a very intimidating place. Big enough to get round via train. <laughs> you think, wow, <laughs> this is... <laughs> I remember thinking, if I went on a train in Carmarthen for half an hour, I'd be in Swansea. That's a different place. How can you still be? <laughs> and then if I got on a train in Swansea and then went for 40 minutes, I'd be in Cardiff. That's another city again. I thought I, the scale of it was just vast. Yeah. So I just, uh, the thing with the Gorkies was they really, even though there were lots of Welsh bands I really loved at the time mm. and still love a lot of them, I felt like they were real representatives of me on on screen when they were, when they used to when they used to be on TV and on the radio and stuff and I just remember thinking this is this is so cool and obviously you know most people don't have this and I suppose you know then you need to foster a self confidence from somewhere that you think okay well I can you know I can do what that person from New York is doing or I can do what that person from Australia is doing or whatever mm. but it was I think it, they came along at a time when I, I really needed that. And I still listen to this record routinely, quite regularly. And it just it just makes me feel young again. But I just think it's a great <laughs> album. I think it's a really, really good album. But it's that great synergy, I suppose, of a lot of things taking place at the same time when you really need them. So mm. there's a book called uh, 1971, Never a Dull Moment, Rock's Greatest Year by David Hepworth, the music journalist. Yeah. He actually presented the Live Aid coverage for the BBC. So he's been a music journalist for, you know, his entire life. Mm. And in the foreword of this book, he says, you know, I was 21 in 1971. If you like rock music, you've hit the jackpot. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't get any better. It does not get any better than that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I feel lucky to have been around in the mid-90s when the Gorkies were going and be from Carmarthen because I just thought it was... Yeah, they were just such an important band for me. So did it inspire you to, I mean, because you said you, you looked at television and thought, how do you get into that? Cambridge Footlights. So did you then think, okay, well, look, the way out of here is not comedy, it's music? I was in lots of bands. I was probably in bands until my early 20s, actually. Mm. I think at one stage I thought, okay, well, if music doesn't take off, because the thing with music is everyone was in a band and there were millions of bands. Mm. And there, there aren't enough positions in the chart and there aren't enough record labels in the same way that there aren't enough acting jobs. Mm-hmm. I remember realising that quite early on and thinking, this is quite intimidating. You've got to be really special. And a variety of things have to work in your favour, I think, for a band to, to for a band to be a success. Like, you've not got to fall out for a kick-off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you've all got to be equally driven and and you can't get your heads turned by girlfriends or boyfriends or all of the distractions that come about when you're a teenager. 
Yeah. And you've all got to be willing to slog your guts out in rehearsals. And and also you have the awkwardness around, well, I wrote that riff. Well, yeah, well, I wrote the bass line. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, the internal dynamics of a band are absolutely fascinating. And often what does it really for a group if, if, if they don't catch on, it might be other stuff, not just the music. But because of the Gorkies, I'm thinking, well, I could maybe be a music journalist. That might be a thing. And there was a, mu- a Welsh music journalist called Simon Price, who wrote for The Melody Maker, who I, luckily enough, I've got to know, actually, over the last few years. And he wrote a book about the Manics, which I loved. And I'm thinking, OK, mm. well, he's from Barry. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, I don't think. But he's in London interviewing Suede and Blur and all these groups. And that's his job. So it did open up all of these avenues of potential. I thought, OK, maybe maybe I could do something that doesn't involve, you know, working for the council or something. I think my ambitions were quite low. I think my ambitions were quite low. <laughs> my friend, Jeremy Pascal, who wrote the pilot that I mentioned earlier, the radio pilot with Peter Kay and Johnny Vegas in it, he was a music journalist for the uh, NME when he was a young man. So in the 60s, and he was given the opportunity to interview the Beatles. Oh, wow. Or the Monkeys. Oh, he didn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Well, he said everybody's interviewed the Beatles. Oh, my God, I'm going to be sick. <laughs> <laughs> Forever afterwards, in the music journalist world, he was known as Jeremy Monkey Pascal. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's 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 going to be a hard one for me to take. And I've never met him. <laughs> no, I know. You don't even know him and it still makes you slightly oh, nauseous. Wow. Yeah. You can understand why he ended up writing comedy. Yeah. Oh, I'm ups- I'm reeling from that. With the greatest <laughs> of respect, Mike, you've 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 ruined my day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I apologise. And to try and make up for it, I would take... I mean, I'm going to assume... I've never heard the Gorkies, but I'm going to assume their music is quite busy because that cover, if it reflects their music, is one of the busiest covers I've ever seen. It is. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is. I just think it's lovely. And there was something about the font that the um, band's name was written in. That's sort of psychedelic to me, that. Yeah, at a, well, they at were... At a time for, when people weren't psychedelic. Yes, and they stopped being as psychedelic with, with the album after this, actually. But mm. what I loved about them was they were uh, quirky and different. And a lot of music was quite macho at the time, yeah. which didn't speak to me. And Eros, the lead singer, there was something quite sensitive about him. And I liked... I think this, is, this probably stems from the fact that the school I went to was a big rugby school. So Stephen Jones, the British Lion, was a couple of years above me and Ken Owens, the current British Lion, was in my sister's class. Mm-hmm. And Emily Lewis, who played for Wales, had gone to my school. So it was a sort of a, a, a very rugby-orientated, comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a rugby player. I'm not built to be a rugby player. But when all of the P lessons revolve around rugby union, a game I am unable to play because I'm too thin. <laughs> We're thinking, oh, God, I've been dealt quite a bad hand here, physically and biologically, thanks, <laughs> genetics. But obviously, a- Aros wasn't Aros wasn't big and muscly, neither were the rest of the band. And also, in- indie musicians weren't generally as well. They were all very thin and pale, and I was thin and pale. But it, d- it did open up a whole new avenue of bands that I probably would have discovered anyway yeah. but they were a great entry point 
So, yeah, I would like to put them in my time capsule, please. We certainly will. Absolutely. Right, that's number two. So uh, what's your third item, Ellis? Okay, it's ad break time, but we'll be back very soon with more from Ellis James. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to part two of My Time Capsule with me and my guest, Ellis James. Let's find out what other things he would like to put in his time capsule. Uh, the book Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby. Are you an Arsenal fan? I'm not an Arsenal fan. I'm a Swansea City fan. But inspired by the Manics, actually, and my English A-level, I went through a phase, certainly as a teenager, of trying to tick off all the books that you're meant to have read. So when I did my A-levels, there was Waterstones released the 100 Greatest Books of the 20th Century list. We were given that in our first lesson. So I remember taking that home and ticking them all off, the ones I'd read, and then trying to read them all. And in that Simon Price book I mentioned, actually, which I can see on my bookshelf, because the Mannix was such a well-read band, I would read Simon's book and I would write all the books. I would write a list of all the books that were recommended by the group, by Nicky Wire or Richie or James or Sean. So then I had this big list. So I was trying my best to work through all these, you know, modern classics. But I don't think anything has spoken to me like Fever Pitch. I think it's a brilliant analysis of um, masculinity and class, what sport means to people and what how identity and sport are wrapped up. It's, it's a great sort of um, history from below, you know, an analysis really or of post-war British history, sort of 67, which I think is when the first, 68, which is when he attends his first match as an 11-year-old to 92 when Arsenal win the title mm. because he talks about... Uh, the Hillsborough disaster, and he talks about um, what happened at Bradford as well, and he talks about football hooliganism, because if you were attending matches in the 70s and 80s, you were going to be caught up in that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, whether you wanted to be or not. And I think he writes really intelligently and very sensitively about these issues. 
And he talks about race as well, because obviously there was a lot of racism on the terraces at British football grounds in the 70s and 80s, which is when mm-hmm. the majority of the book is set. And also football was in a really bad place in the 70s and 80s. People forget this now. It's, it's such a huge part of global culture, particularly British culture. You know, when England got to the Euros final, I mean, the English, as someone who's lived in England for 10 years, are football mad. They are football mad. And I think that probably started with Italian 90 because in the mid 80s, you know, attendances were low because everyone, you know, if you were normal, you were terrified that you were going to get stabbed at the match. Yeah. And we were banned from European games, so we had <laughs> yes. nothing to watch. Exactly. <laughs> so he writes about Heysel, actually. He, and um, it's also funny. It's a very funny book. And I think he's got an absolutely gorgeous turn of phrase. And because he also mm. writes about music, you know, High Fidelity, I really love. And he does talk about music and he talks about obsessions, which is something that speaks to me. I think it's a really good book. And because I know it so well, often I will use it as a reference book. So I will think, okay, there's some Arsenal player did something in the 70s. It's about halfway through Fever Pitch. So I'll find the passage. I'll get the fact that I need to, you know, verify or whatever. And then I'll read the next page and I'll read the next page. And I think, <laughs> oh, sod, I'll just start again. So I've, I've probably read the book 10 or 12 times. And is it because I noticed that you'd like to write things down? When you think of things, you like, you know, you've got a notebook and you then saying, you know, I wrote down the list of books that I should read and I was given this list of uh, the 100 top books. So do you like lists? So Because uh, Nick Hornby is a great list writer, isn't he? Yeah, I do write lists. Um, that's now been uh, replaced by the iPhone note. <laughs> but, yeah, with, with Fever Pitch... I just remember reading the first line thinking, oh, this is good. And then the second page thinking, oh, this is funny and interesting. And then by about page 30, I just could not put it down. And I thought, my God, he's, it's like he's been watching me. <laughs> and he's 25 years older than I am. And also, I, I wasn't attending football matches in the 70s and 80s. I didn't start going to football until the early 90s. But the experience was still broadly the same, I would say. I think, I think certainly football has changed a lot since all Seater Stadium were brought in. And he talks about a kind of football that I'm very nostalgic about because that it's disappeared, it's gone. You know, I was I was reading about um, Arsenal playing Everton in about 1988, and he says it was one of the last really big, huge cr- crowds you'd get at Highbury before they, you know, they'd knocked down the terrace in the North Bank and the Cock End and made it all seat up because mm-hmm. there were fifty five and a half thousand in the ground. And when there's that many and they're all packed in so tightly and they're all so close to the pitch, and everyone's standing up, there's this general background roar that never disappears. Mm. Whereas even in a big old seat stadium, you just don't get that unless the game is very exciting. No, you can go to Wembley and it's almost silent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Mm. yeah. I remember that ground very well. I lived just around the corner in the 80s. So on a Saturday, our house, you had to keep the windows shut because the roar from the crowd was so loud. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. You could always tell the score from the reaction of the crowd. (laughs) It was great. yeah. That's exactly it. And I think what he writes about, and the reason the book resonates with me so much, is that as much as I love football, ultimately what I really like is the event. (laughs) And I like being at a sporting event that is so visceral that it makes you think, I am at the centre of the universe. Everyone would love to be where I am now. And he writes about that because the thing with sport, I think that people who don't like sport think that sports fans 
in the pub in the run-up to the game, they're just talking about tactics and formations and shape. And then that's all they do during the game. And that's all they do after the game. And that's all they think about all week. I very rarely think about that stuff. No. I like being there with my friends. And I like the fact that the club represents where I'm from. And I like the fact that, you know, I've been to Arsenal lots of times with Swansea. I like the fact that in the away end, there's lots of people who grew up near where I grew up. So it's it's far more fundamental than that. Mm. And yeah, obviously you've got people who like talking about formations and shape and tactics and whether you should play with an inverted winger and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and there's absolutely room for that. But ultimately it's about identity and a day out, but a day out that means something to thousands of people. So I've, well, millions worldwide. So I've been to football matches, especially with the Swans, where I'm on a minibus of Swansea fans from Carmarthen. And to be honest... The thing that holds us all together, the thing that we all have in common is the club. Mm. As long as we're talking about the club, we could talk all day. And that, that is what we talk about. And I think that's a very special thing. And I think he really taps into this. And I don't think football had been written about in that way before. And I don't think anyone has written about it as successfully since. And I think because Arsenal are bad when they start, when the book starts, and they tend to be bad apart from the odd FA Cup win and then obviously they win the league and Cup double in 71 because they tend to be quite rubbish, really. Mm, And regarded as boring as well. And regarded as boring and dour and defensive. Mm. And then suddenly they win the league (laughs) in what I think is the greatest moment in the history of football in 1989. It gives the book this fantastic narrative arc. (laughs) So you've got a great writer and a great... telling a great story. And rather like those true crime dramas that you see, you know the end, but you're still excited by it. You almost wonder if it's going to happen. And there's a bit where I think they lose the Littlewoods Cup final to Luton in 1988, I think. And he says, as a writer, if this was a novel, Arsenal would win. Because another Cup final defeat, to be honest, stretches the credibility of the reader. (laughs) And we would all be thinking, oh, come on, not again, not another one. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's a memoir and, and they lost. <laughs> There's nothing they can do about that. He's controlled by reality, yes. <laughs> yeah, and then he has therapy and his career starts to take off just as Arsenal win the title. But that's the stage where he's realised that his life isn't intertwined with the success of the club, mm. which I think is something most fans of football, you know, most fans of sport have probably suspected. They think, oh, well, I didn't wear my lucky jeans and now we're out of the FA Cup. Oh, God. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I just think I just think it's a, a wonderful book. And I think I probably would take it to a desert island because I notice something new every time I read it. One of my favourite experiences in a football club was, at, was, strangely, at Arsenal, at Highbury. They'd just signed the player Chris Kiwomia. Oh, yeah. And he scored a goal on his debut. And, of course, normally when a player scores a goal, everybody chants their song. And they didn't have one for him. (laughs) And so they cheered. They went, yeah, great roar. And then it went quiet. And one voice started singing, Kiwomya, my lord, Kiwomya. Oh, great. And they instantly took it up. Everybody sang it. That's brilliant. It was a magical moment. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Mm. The thing with the Arsenal one is... um, it's the fact that it was the only two clubs who could still win the league were playing each other in the final game, yes. which has never ha- it never happened before and hasn't happened since. There's a really good film about it called 89. And, I mean, this is reflecting the book really about how much football's changed. They ended up, they came back on the coach, the Arsenal players, and they ended up 
in some nightclub. It was called something like Strikers. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, they'd be going to whatever the best club in central London is. Mm. I don't know what that would be. The most expensive club where all the champagne is 25 grand. Yeah. That's what they do now. Mm. But it was called something like Strikers, and it was somewhere <laughs> very unglamorous, and they ended up there with a load of fans. And there's footage of it, and it's really, really sweet how unglamorous and how unaffected the celebrations are. And at the end, someone who was in the it was in the club with the with the players, they all pile out at about six in the morning, and the um, obviously it's the first editions of the papers, and uh, yeah, they all sat on the street outside a newsagent reading the match report. The fans and the players Wonderful. were all hammered. It just sounded great, yeah. I once got a train from Liverpool to London on a Saturday morning and walked down through the train and went into a carriage which was just full of the Liverpool players. Oh, wow. And I sat down next to Emlyn Hughes and chatted to him. (laughs) Wow. Mm. That's amazing. Isn't it? Nobody said to me, excuse me, mate, this is our carriage. They just went, oh, he's only one bloke. That's a different world, isn't it? Isn't it just? Well, Fever Pitch, yes, it's a long time since I've read it, but you've inspired me to read it again, actually. You'll zip through it. It's not a long book. But if you like football, I think, especially if you remember football as it was in the 80s and early 90s, it will resonate with you, I think. Yeah. Okay, lovely. We will put that into the time capsule for you. And uh, we'll move on to item number four. Well, you said in the email, through the magic of podcasting, we can find things that have since been lost. Yes. And this is quite recent, but I don't have it anymore. I don't know where it is, and I would like to have it. I've written three stand-up shows in Welsh, which is my first language. It's the language I would speak with my mum and dad and my sisters. Mm -hmm. It's the language I spoke at school. So my lessons were in Welsh, apart from English Lang and English Lit, obviously. Mm. Well, no wonder you didn't get to Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd been doing stand-up for 10 years in English, and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd done Joss with you by that point, mm-hmm. and I'd been on panel shows and I'd done stand-up on telly. I was on the radio by then. We were on XFM as it was then by 2015, but I'd never done anything in Welsh which is odd, really, because, you know, it's as I said, it's the language I would speak with my mum and dad. It's, mm. it's the language I think in. Because there hadn't really been an opportunity. And then S4C approached my agent. They said, would Alice be interested in writing a show? So I replied, yes. And the interesting part of the process, or the thing I found interesting in the process, was I'd already written my first hour in Edinburgh in 2009. So I'd done that and I'd taught that. So you only get an opportunity to write your first show once. Yeah. But because there was so much stuff from my background and my childhood that I couldn't do on stage in English because people wouldn't get references, I effectively was able to write my first show twice. I would get a second (laughs) attempt at writing my first show because there was all this stuff from school and my childhood and things my grandparents used to do or my relationship with my parents, which didn't resonate with an English or a Scottish audience or even a, a non-Welsh-speaking Welsh audience. Mm. And all these observations about Welsh-language culture, which were unique to Welsh-language culture and Welsh-language television and music and all that kind of stuff. It was all this stuff that I'd been unable to use. The thing that was so exciting was the problem with your first show is that your first show is your best. If you're an autobiographical stand-up, and if you're not just doing topical mm. stuff, and or if you're not just writing you know, jokes 
your first show really is your best material because it's everything up to that point. <laughs> yeah. And the, sh- the shame is you're usually not a good enough stand-up to get the best out of that material, uh, to get the best out of the source material because you don't have the craft yet mm. to make the most of it. But obviously by the time SOC asked me to write this show, I'd written, how many had I written? I think I'd written four stand-up shows and two sketch shows and other things. Right. So I was, you know, I was a better writer and performer than I had been in 2009 when I'd written the first English one. And there was just this wealth of stuff. And because there wasn't, you know, there's a vibrant Welsh language music scene, particular, it's particularly good for indie music at the moment, actually. But there was very little comedies and there was almost no Welsh language stand-up because the problem is, if you're doing stand-up in, in Welsh, you've got to do it in Wales, although I, I now can do gigs in London and will probably do a gig in Liverpool on my next tour. And I did one at the Edinburgh Festival, actually, uh, a couple of years ago. And enough Welsh-speaking people are there to turn up. In London. I did three nights in London. Wow, that's great. You know, you're hamstrung really by the size of Wales as a country, and we're a small country. Yeah. So the thing I found difficult was you run out of towns if you were going to do, I don't know, a special on Channel 4 or something or on Netflix, usually you would do, I don't know, maybe 30 previews and then you do a whole run at the Edinburgh Festival and then you tour it around mm. the UK and you might do Ireland and you might do Australia and New Zealand and then you would record it at the end of that. So it's, by this stage, you've you've worked through every possible potential line. It's in your bones. You've learnt it. You can do it in your sleep. And then you would do it over two nights. So this Welsh one... There weren't enough towns with enough people living in them <laughs> for me to do a tour that big. Mm. So the thing I'll never forget is the producer was a really, really talented guy, uh, Gethin, who's died actually sadly. Um, but I remember we were talking throughout and he could tell that the basic stuff was good enough. So it was a question of honing it, mm. improving it, and then learning it. And I think I had nine or 10 gigs, which wasn't enough. So I was very, very nervous because in English, really, it would be madness to do that, to do an hour on telly, having only done the stuff nine times. No one would do it because you wouldn't have to. Why would you? You could do nine gigs in London. But there were no more venues that were willing to have me because there (laughs) there wasn't anyone really doing, very few people doing Welsh language stand-up. So I said to Geth all along, I said, listen, you and I can try and hone it together, and we can try and improve it. But I said, I can't learn it all as well. So what we'll do on the night, we'll have um, <laughs> we'll have an auto cue. So then I can just concentrate on my performance. And he said, fine, no problem. And uh, the only problem with that plan was I'd never used an auto cue before. <laughs> <laughs> so we were doing it at the Richard Burton Theatre in Cardiff, so I turned up at about lunchtime and I met the crew and we sorted out the lights and then I had something to eat. And then at about five o'clock, he said, do you want to give this autocue a go? Oh, God. And I said, yeah, yeah, fine, let's do that. Because that was the one part that I thought was going to be fine. Yeah. Because by this stage, the final preview had been in Swansea, I think. And that, that had gone quite well. So I was fairly confident that the material was going to be all right. And then we tried the autocue. And in, f- in fairness to Geth, he'd wanted me to do these. <laughs> he'd wanted me to do these. 
uh, the, the autocue all day and I'd been putting it off. I think because I was a bit nervous and I was thinking about other stuff. Anyway, we tried it at five o'clock and I couldn't read it. Oh, no. So by about five past five, I said, this isn't working, Kev. I can't, I can't do this. And he went white. Oh, God. And he said, so what are you going to do? We're, we're on stage at seven. I said, I'll write bullet points on my hand. I will just, we'll just go for it. So that's what I did. So I went upstairs. I said, if you can bring me some tweets, I'll pace in the dressing room and I'll run it in real time. So I've done it once on my own before we start. And then as I'm doing it in the dressing room, I'll write down bullet points for things that I forget. So it won't really be a structure of a show. It'll just be pointers to things I think that are important that I think I could dry up on stage with. And he was like, okay. So that's what I did. So I paced up and down and I, I did the show to myself. But obviously I forgot everything. <laughs> oh, <God>. so, so, <laughs> by about 20 past six, I had bullet points started from the knuckle of my little finger, basically up to my elbow. <laughs> it looked, oh, it looked like a tattoo. It looked like a t- And because, because the notes were so small... Because <laughs> I, I, was, I was running out of body, I was running out of arm. <laughs> it was all unreadable. So we were on stage at seven, and at about twenty to seven, I was like, "This is this is insane! I can't I can't do this." So I washed my hand, which took ages. Took my washed on my my hand and my arm, and I wrote a very basic skeleton. Yeah. Incredibly, it was fine. Through sheer adrenaline, I think I maybe forgot one small bit. But I remember going on stage and I was announced at seven o'clock and at 6.59, I remember thinking to myself, as long as I get my first joke out, I'll be all right. So <laughs> I just kept retelling my first joke to myself again and again and again. I thought once mm. I've done that, we're off and it should be all right. And then the adrenaline of the crowd should see me through, I think. So I did my first joke, that went okay. And then I was off. And after about half an hour, I'm thinking, wow, this is, I'm actually going to get away with this. And I, I watched it back a couple of years ago and I'm sweating, like I'm quite wild-eyed because I can't <laughs> believe I'm getting away with it. <laughs> and of the three I wrote, I wrote one in 2015, 17, and then 2019, which is the last one. 2015 is the worst one. I think the other two are better, but 2015 is my favourite because up to the very last moment, I didn't think I could get away with it. And I think I did get away with it. And you can tell from my performance and the fact that my fringe is sopping wet and stuck to my forehead <laughs> that I was just, honestly, it felt like being electrocuted, the, the adrenaline, because I knew it was going on TV. It wasn't just a gig. It was, it was a thing that was going to go on TV. I think it went on telly around Christmas time as well. I was under quite a lot of pressure. So you're going to be judged on this all the time, forever. Yeah, and I remember, I remember coming off stage and I couldn't sit down because of the adrenaline. I couldn't sit down, but I didn't. I didn't want to stand up, so I just paced. I paced for about an hour and a half. <laughs> and the thing I would love is the notes, notes from a notebook, and I was taking mm. pointers from that notebook to write on my hand and on my arm. Right. And I've lost that notebook, um. and I would love to have that because I don't know where it is, and I don't know what I've done with it. I've got it here oh, in a thank drawer. You. There we are. But that last gig would have been in Swansea the night before, I think. And I remember writing the notes out really tidily and thinking, this is the show. Yeah. This is the show. 
yeah, but I've lost them. So I would like those to be in my time capsule, please. Absolutely. But isn't it a lovely thing? I love the idea that because it's in a different language, you can suddenly go back and do your first gig again. You know, everybody spends their life thinking, if only I could do that thing again, but with what I know now. Yeah. If only I could take my experience and my learning and apply it to that situation. Oh. And you had that opportunity, apart from, unfortunately, what you didn't know then was that you couldn't read an autocue. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, if you could find that notebook, that would be very, very... Yeah, no, I've got uh, it. I've got handy. it. Yeah, thank it's you. It's really interesting. Unfortunately, I can't read a word of it. It's in well. <laughs> anyway, there we are. Right, OK, that notebook from that pre-recording gig, that goes into the time capsule. OK, Ellis, we've got one final thing to put in there, and this is something you want to get rid of from your life. It is my phone. Ah. Because the difficult thing with a phone is that you've got the whole world in your pocket which is great, really, but it is the ultimate procrastination device. And I think I am prone to procrastination. And yet I think about those lists I used to write when I was younger, and in particular, how much I used to read. I used to read an awful lot. Mm. And I still read. I can't sleep if I haven't read a few pages of my book, but I mean, that's three pages. Whereas, yeah, I certainly when I was uh, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, but I mean, we lived on a street of uh, starter homes when I was little. So a lot of people my parents' age and a lot of kids my age. It was a really great place to grow up. And then we moved to we moved to Carmarthen actually, hmm. um, but we lived outside of town. And there were only five or six houses by where we lived, and they were all old people, so there were no kids for me to play with. So I just became. You know, I was obsessed with books and reading and also watching comedy on video and things because mm. I'd spent so much time on my own because my sisters didn't really want to play football. And it's hard to play football on your own. I used to kick a ball against a wall a lot, but you don't really improve. What that makes you is very good at kicking a ball against a wall. <laughs> so I used to read a lot and I used to listen to music and I used to take, in particular, comedy and books and music very seriously. And I think that if you could have taken me, say, at 20... In comparison with most twenty-year-olds, I was probably quite, you know, I'd 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 read more than uh, some of my friends, mm -hmm. I think, because they were off doing more exciting things, probably because they lived in town and had more access to mischief. And yet now, you know, I've never regretted playing a game of football. I've never regretted playing guitar. I've never regretted watching a film. I've never regretted watching stand-up on telly or any of the things I like doing or reading a book. But with the iPhone, it tells you on a Monday morning what your average screen time was for the previous week. It's such a depressing way to kickstart your week. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it will tell me and I just think, oh, my God, I mean, what would I, if this had never been invented, if I was a 40-year-old father of two in 1990, what would I have done with my day then? Like, how would my life have been different? Or how would my life be different if... I was one of those people who tries to go off grid and might have a landline or one of those old-fashioned brick phones that you can't go on the internet on. And obviously there are advantages because I was at my mum and dad's house quite recently, last weekend in fact, and mum and dad have got maybe five photo albums covering our childhoods. You know, my two sisters and I, 1980 to sort of 1998. Yes. Holidays, birthdays, Christmas. Yeah. Whereas I probably have... I don't know, 15,000 photos of my kids on my phone, <laughs> maybe more. Yeah. So obviously it's nice to be able to record that stuff. Of course it is, although eventually it becomes overwhelming. But I just think that 
I don't, I don't know about you, but um, I sometimes have problems recognising people I might have worked with three or four years ago. And I used to have a really good memory. And a few months ago, I bumped into someone. And I'd worked with her quite closely about two years ago. And I, I didn't recognise her. <laughs> but it just makes you look very arrogant. It just makes you look really arrogant. Oh. But I think maybe I might not have been present in the room because I might have been on my phone or something, or maybe it's just age, or maybe I have a syndrome that's un- as yet undiagnosed and I can't remember people's faces. <laughs> but it's, it's um, <laughs> again, when someone said, hi, Ellis, it's, uh, it's Abigail. We worked with each other two years ago. You can't say, right, listen, I might not have been present because I might have been on my phone. I think I have an undiagnosed syndrome, which means I don't recognise faces. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to believe that, so aren't they? So I just had to go, hey, <laughs> Abby, Abby, gay, gay, or Abby. It was both. It was we. We said both. That's the thing I remember. Yes, you directed, produced, wrote the thing I was That's in. Right. I love what you've done with your hair. Just leaving it the same as it was. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. You have children, don't have children. That was what we discussed. Not have hate. Hate, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I just think that, um, I think probably because obviously phones are useful for a variety of reasons, I think it's probably social media is the thing I would like to put in the time capsule and burn. Yeah, fair enough. It can waste an enormous amount of your time, can't it? God, yeah. It's extraordinary. And I was trying to explain to my grandson just yesterday how when I first started going out with my wife, her parents didn't have a phone. Yeah. And if you wanted to talk to her on the phone, we would arrange a time of day where she would be standing outside the local phone box. And I would call that number and hopefully she would answer it. I tried telling my daughter that yesterday, in fact. I said, when your grandparents were alive, they, they often didn't have a phone in the house. And they didn't. And they didn't have a telly. She's like, "What?" I said, I, "They certainly didn't have a laptop." What? And she, it, she was just stunned. Or a car. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. But I am 117, so you know that's fair enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Honestly, oh, I was a terrible childhood. Up the chimney, I can't tell you. What yeah. Oh, do you know what? That, it's funny you should say that. I read her. A, she was reading a book before bed, and she said, "What's a sweep?" Oh. I said, let me have a look at the context. And it was a chimney sweep. Mm. And I said, oh, chimney sweep. Um, it's someone who cleans chimney stacks. And a very, very long time ago, they used to send people up there with these special brushes. She was like, oh, okay. And I said, it's quite, it's quite dirty work. A very, very long time ago, they used to send little kids up to do it. And she said, no, they didn't. And I said, they did. <laughs> and I Googled it. And I said, I'm sure they were kids as young as six. And they were apparently kids as young as four. Wow. I told her this, and she she became absolutely terrified that I was going to send her off to work as chimney sweeps. <laughs> <laughs> trying to calm her down and say, it's fine. Yes. It's fine. You, you don't need an independent source of income. We want you to go to primary school. <laughs> you don't need to work as a chimney sweep. And I'm, I'm sure it's automated or something now. Yes, although, hang on a second, look at those tiny little nimble fingers. Wouldn't they be useful <laughs> in a cotton factory? Mm. Yeah, you're good at climbing, aren't you? <laughs> Oh, there we are. Well, I think you're right. We should put social media from your phone. Wow. I'll leave you the ability to communicate, but the rest of it, then you've got all that free time. Oh, thank you. For reading Nick Hornby. Yes. Ellis, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. 
been lovely to find out the things you want to put in your time capsule. Do you know, I loved that. I loved every second of that. Thank you for having me on, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest for this episode, Ellis James. You can hear all the episodes of My Time Capsule on Acast or the podcast provider of your choice. And if you subscribe to it, you'll get all new episodes as they become available. Please do rate the show on your app before you go. And if you're really keen and feeling generous with your time, you can actually write a review. Not on all platforms, but certainly Apple Podcasts. They and we are very excited when listeners do, so thanks in advance. You can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook for news of what we're up to and what's coming up. And the thin tune of this podcast, which was written and performed by Past the Peas Music, is excitingly available to listen to at your leisure on Spotify. You can even download it. Or should that be download? Download or download? I don't know. Anyway, this was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Until next time, thanks for listening, especially if you've made it all the way to this point without skipping forwards. I mean, I wouldn't blame you if you have, but for those amongst you who like to listen to me rambling on, uh, not many, I'm sure, thanks. In fact, now that I've mentioned it, I've probably reminded you that you can skip forward or indeed move on to another episode or, God forbid, another podcast. I should imagine it's only those of you who've nodded off listening to my voice that remain, so I'll leave you in peace. You obviously need your rest. Bye-bye. Sleep tight. You're waiting for me to make a loud noise, aren't you? I'm not going to do it. Bye. I'm really not going to do it. A little more faith wouldn't go amiss, you know. Oh, sorry, that wasn't me, bloody neighbours. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.